Herzlich Willkommen zum Modellansatz, der mathematische Podcast aus Karlsruhe mit Gudrun Täter und Sebastian Ritterbusch. Hallo Karen. Hi. I'm really excited uh, to be in uh, at, the, at the London University for the very first time. So today we are the, at UCL, University College London, in the mathematical department, uh, very high in the building in the eighth floor. I was just reaching out to you uh, if you would have uh, a little bit of time to talk to me about your mathematical research. And uh, I was delighted that you answered with yes. So now we are here meeting for the first time, but we are both smiling and <laughs> um, very looking forward um, to seeing what types of co um, topics we will cover in, in the next minutes. Um, your main um, topic or your main interest is on um, mathematic modeling in the field of pattern formation. So maybe a first question from my side um, What does this mean if you're modeling patterns? And so I'm interested in biological pattern formation, so primarily in how patterns form in embryos. Um, so I guess an example would be, and this isn't something that I've worked on, but how you end up having five fingers on your hand, for example. So how does the bone deposit in such a way that you get five fingers? So in this way, pattern really also means geometrical shapes in the end. Yeah, geometrical uh, shapes or any kind of spatial structure really in an embryo so I mean you have the DNA which somehow encodes how this thing is going to develop but the thing is a three-dimensional object with spatial structure so looking at how that develops over time. Yes but um, of course this sounds kind of um, firstly interesting and exciting but it also sounds like um, I wouldn't know where to begin. So uh -huh. what do you really do uh, in order to understand this better? So the first thing to say is that I always collaborate with experimental biologists because they're the ones who really understand the system and know the interesting questions. Um, so um, one of my main projects at the moment is working on the development of the nervous system. So there's a structure in the embryo of vertebrates called the neural tube, which becomes the spinal cord and brain later in development. So we're interested in understanding how neurons in this tube decide what type of neuron to be. So some of them become motor neurons and others become other types of neuron and they do this in a spatially organized way so we're interested in answering that question um, so yes I work with developmental biologists who have specific questions um, and build models which are both spatial and look at the decision making of individual cells as well so spatial means um, for example that neighboring cells decide for being the same type of cell. Yes, that's right. So um, when, I, when I'm talking about spatial models, I'm talking about models of the whole tissue, the whole tube or, or whatever it is that you're interested in. Um, whereas when I'm modeling individual cells, I'm thinking of them as some kind of well-mixed pot. So I'm building a non-spatial model in that case. Yeah, so kind of very different uh, types of objects, but uh, types of models as well, mathematical objects. 
but um, things are related. So one is kind of leading to the other. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, so when you write down um, a model on which you want to understand something, what mm -hmm. kind of mathematical object is that? Um, so if I'm building a model of an individual cell, we started with a dynamical system. So we were modeling the levels of different proteins in that cell. So we're just using differential equations to describe the ordinary differential equations to describe the time evolution of the levels of various different proteins but these proteins influence each other so the equations are coupled so you end up with a dynamical system and how many um, proteins would you take in, in order to follow the process yeah so in in the example that i'm talking about we had three proteins that interact within the cell and we have one external input but we treat the external input as a parameter so we have a three-dimensional dynamical system i was just laughing a little bit because i was kind of expecting a nightmare of 100 or something like that <laughs> and i was like oh, no but it's, it's no much there more are people that do deal with yeah. that people try to reconstruct whole gene networks because as i say proteins influence the production of other proteins so you can think of the proteins in your cell as interacting in a network um, and people build very large models and try to uh, infer the interactions between lots of different proteins um, but I don't really like doing that because being a mathematician I find very very big models very difficult to understand very difficult to apply any kind of analytical techniques too yeah. so i prefer it when the system is simple enough that you can do a bit of maths yeah uh, the kind of hidden thing there is that whenever you start to work with these network things or graphs mm -hmm. and so with, with a lot of variables then you have to trust that the computer is willing what you told him to do or what you was ex were expecting him to do yes <laughs> and sometimes if you have very large models you can make them do Whatever you like, almost. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah and with um, just having like um, three ordinary differential equations in a coupled way and then with a parameter from outside, um, of course, it's still, as a mathematical object, quite complicated. Yes. Uh, much more complicated than what one would expect. Because, you know, this um, mm. person's not working with that, they might not be aware of the fact that going from one equation to two is not just doubling. It's mm -hmm. more like going from a line to a square. So you have so much more, so infinitely many more um, possibilities what can happen. Yeah. So, I mean, in fact, in dynamical systems, the theory for two-dimensional systems is quite well defined. Mm. The set of long-term behavior behaviors that you can get uh, in at large times is fairly limited by the Poincaré-Bendixson theorem. Yeah. Uh, whereas in three dimensions, that's not true. It happens that our system sort of collapses onto a two-dimensional manifold. So this theorem from two-dimensional systems still applies um, in our system. Yeah. But that wasn't obvious straight away. You had to kind of prove that it was going to do that. Okay, yeah, so... This was because I'm a partial differential person, and then okay. I was, I'm mm -hmm. always kind of considering the ordinary ones as to be like the the children, we, which as adults would be partial differential equations. Partial differential, yeah. In our case, infinite dimensional yeah, yeah, in system. Our case, it's really like going from a, an equation to a system is really like um, exploding your brain if you really would like yes. to understand it better. And yes. I, of course, I teach my students myself. Um, right. <laughs> but I mean. 
in three dimensions you can get chaos and yeah, this kind of thing, thing whereas in yeah. two dimensions you can get oscillations or a fixed point basically in the long term and so there is a jumping complexity from two to three two dimensions two. obviously it's a lot simpler than partial differential equations so no, no, I'm just, also this is sometimes really a little bit cheating uh, to consider the ordinary differential equations to be that simple mm. uh, because um, the space in which you let things develop can be quite complicated Mm -hmm. So if it's not just, you know, a variable with a scalar and things like that, um, there is mm -hmm. so much, <clears throat> so much things um, still to uncover for evolutionary systems. Mm -hmm. um, so what kind of um, problem would be a typical one um, you study and what kind of results do you then get? Yeah, so um, this problem that I was talking about deciding how cells decide what type of neuron to be. So there, the... the um, the neurons are specified by the expression of a certain protein, by the production of a certain protein. So um, I don't want to get too specific with the names, but motor neurons express a gene called oleg2. So they produce the protein of oleg2. So this is one of our three variables in our dynamical system. Um, so there we were really looking at um, to see if we could explain some... Um, biological results and also to see if we could predict things that weren't already known um so what actually happens in the system is i mentioned that there was an external input this is a morphogen so a, a protein that is produced in a um a graded way uh, produces a gradient and which cells respond to so they do different things depending on whether they see different levels of this morphogen, and it's called sonic hedgehog. So geneticists like to give things funny names. Um, so, yes, what, what you see experimentally is at different levels of sonic hedgehog, the three genes in your dynamical system are expressed. So you have one that's expressed at high levels, one at medium levels, and one at low levels. But it was also known that the system doesn't just respond to the level of the input signal, but also the duration of the input signal. So we were looking at that. And also we were able to show that the system exhibits hysteresis, so that um, the signal that's required to switch on a gene is higher than the signal that's required to maintain that gene. Uh, this kind of thing we also discovered that the system could behave in a completely different way which it doesn't in in normal embryos but that it can oscillate so instead of having this pattern where you have one gene expressed at high morphogen one at medium and one at low morphogen you can have oscillations so you can have one gene being expressed after another after uh, another and that depends on certain parameter values so we're kind of hoping now that we can engineer these embryos to oscillate instead of producing these patterns this is quite a difficult thing to do experimentally but yes yeah because mm. also it's not clear in the end if you are really um, if it's possible to reproduce this if you just kind of overlooked something which is not in your system which yes. you know was just not discovered that it's uh, important that's i mean that's always going to be true so I'm modeling three genes interacting, but there are so loads many, and loads of yeah. genes interacting. We just think that these are the three important ones. So um, this is embedded in a much more complicated system. And actually, there is a fourth gene, which is now thought to be fairly important. So we may have to incorporate that into our models. 
So taking on a force um, differential equation or in, in what way? Yes, probably in, uh, taking on a force differential equation. But I suppose the question really is, I mean, so with the models that we're building, even though we've only got three proteins, there are quite a few parameters. You know, yeah. each equation might have four parameters or three or four parameters. So you've got quite a few parameters that are unknown. So what we try to do is use dynamical systems theory to work out the generic properties, you know, to show that there's going to be a bifurcation here and that you will switch from this type of behavior to this type of behavior. And so to get an idea of the kind of global structure, rather than trying to fit our results to the data and infer parameters, because there are just a lot of parameters. So in some sense, if you've got too many genes, it would be impossible to understand the generic behaviors of the system. And there are parameters in the system that are difficult to measure. So I said that the, the proteins affect each other's production. And this is because proteins bind to DNA and stop other genes from being from producing their proteins or cause them to produce their proteins. And these binding constants are very difficult to get at experimentally. So some of the uh, parameters of our model, like the degradation rates of the proteins, are sort of possible to get at experimentally, but some of them are very difficult. Yeah, so I guess it's even um, more like a mental picture uh, with the help of a mathematical model yes. um, that you think about uh, really proteins going to some place and binding there, um, mm. really to to measure the, what that means, that they are binding there, yes. is probably already not so obvious. It's As so, you know, yeah. our inner picture, which we have since we learned that it's at school, that yes. we really have this helical structure and, and like like coding thing and thing. This is, of course, nice as a, as a general picture, general model for that. Yes. No, well, I mean, the, the uh, genome has a certain percent, a fairly small percent, which codes for proteins. Yeah. But then there are also regions which um, determine whether those proteins are going to be produced or not. Or not so, yeah. And what happens there is that other proteins bind, and depending on whether they're bound or not, this protein here will be produced. So that's exactly, we call them gene regulatory networks so where one the protein produced by one gene affects whether the protein produced by another gene is produced so the, there are these regions and they're called enhancers in um, the type of organisms that that we're interested in and these kind of integrate a bunch of signals to decide whether the gene near this enhancer will be will produce its protein or not <laughs> no i think um It's also kind of interesting to see how these types of mellow, um, models develop in our own lifetime. Mm. Because um, when I was at school, it was be considered to be like a very stable thing with the DNA. Of course, uh, things change over time um, mm. due to processes um, which we cannot really understand so well, just that they exist because there is a development of different species mm. and things mm. like that. But that um, things really... Um, change in our own lifetime and not just yeah. during you know you get older but uh, really mm. a change in the what kind of type of dna you're using or not using things like yeah, that so i mean all the cells in your body have basically the same dna yeah. you might have a rare mutation here or there but your dna is almost identical in every cell in your body but your neurons and your skin cells don't behave at all similarly they don't even look similar And they don't behave similarly. And that's because they're producing a different range of proteins. 
So that's going on all the time. Yeah. Yes, and so um, I think we are still in for quite an interesting ride, even, you know, for our children and the children of our children. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, to, to understand it, uh, that good that we can really make them things do which we would like them to do, yeah? Yes. Yeah, I think we are still far away from that. <laughs> of course, I can immediately understand that um, persons uh, find this very interesting and uh, even kind of the mathematical theory mm -hmm. seems like... Um, a really good idea to try that out in my head. So mm -hmm. it's just, you know, just my subjective uh, view on that. Um, but um, what, um, how did you come to the decision to become a mathematician? Um, so I liked maths from a very early age. I mean, I can remember liking maths when I was about six, I think. Um, and when I was in my late teens, I suppose I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but I really liked maths. So I studied maths at university And then again, when I finished my degree, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. So I applied for a range of jobs and some PhDs as well. Um, and I went to speak to Philip Maney in Oxford and he told me about Turing patterning. And I thought, wow, this is really fascinating. And so I ended up working on, well, I mean, the project was in fact on understanding an early, a very early stage of embryo development, but using models like Turing models. So that's what I did my, my DPhil on. Yeah, but Turing models is more like um, uh, from computer science so, or algebra, whatever you see. No, no, I mean, the Turing patterns um, were uh, discovered, stroke invented, whatever you like, by, by Turing, yeah. but, um, but they are... Uh, models of effectively chemical systems okay. so um, they're, they're partial differential equations so you if you have a chemical system and if the system were well mixed um, the the chemicals would converge to some equilibrium level so this equilibrium level is stable to non-spatial perturbations so if you just raise the chem one chemical everywhere by the same amount that perturbation will die off and you'll go back to your steady state. But if you have a spatially extended system, if the system is not well mixed, then the steady state is unstable to certain sinusoidal perturbations. So you get the spontaneous production of patterns. So if you have a little bit of noise, like from heat or something, then the, the steady state is unstable to certain sinusoidal perturbations, which will then grow and produce patterns. So that's what a Turing pattern is, basically. <laughs> And he wrote a paper in 1952, I think it was his final paper, uh, called The Chemical Basis of Morphogenesis, which describes this idea of spontaneous pattern formation. So how a previously unstructured thing could become structured through this symmetry-breaking mechanism. Mm. Which is kind of a breaking with uh, classical ideas um, from partial differential equation, because we are always kind of on the lookout for uh, systems where things tend to the equilibrium. Mm -hmm. So through this education that um, observing things in, in physics 
mm. very often you can take this as the process which really drives something though that you go to a minimum energy or mm. uh, just a movement dies out and there is kind of an equilibrium space yes. equilibrium state uh, where everything turns to and then you just see how big the perturbations um, can be mm -hmm. um, and things like that And then just uh, throwing this all in the corner and saying, but there will happen much more interesting things and we should find out how. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, I think people refer this uh, to this as a non-equilibrium system, presumably yeah. because the reactions involved require energy. Yeah. So this is not equilibrium thermodynamics. You yeah, know? That's so that's, this is a non-equilibrium system. Yeah. So you have to uh, get, mm. give energy in it in a certain form yes. in order to have that. But that's not that surprising because this also coincides with, with things we observe. Because sometimes the energy is not even big. It's just energy in a certain type. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just saying this because, um, for example, if you have like... Um, <laughs> I don't know the English name now. Um, if you have this oscillatory behavior of a metal uh -huh. and um, you just have something hanging and um, then you can give a little bit of energy from above and, and the system either really you get the energy where it dies down or where it really starts to behave crazy and even crazier. And uh, you have this just in, in your hand. So it's it's really a very small energy. It's just a question um, in which a time um, distribution you do that. And um, this is such an easy thing to do. And for example, if the children play with a yo-yo, uh -huh. they are kind of doing that in, in a stabilizing way in order yes. that the yo-yo keeps going. But you can also make this in a destabilizing way and, and produce interesting patterns. But since this is an, exper is an experiment, it's uh, kind of difficult to repeat things as precise as you would wish for example in a lecture <laughs> but in order to prove that interesting things happens then just one interesting thing has to happen this is, is easier I, i like to do that with my students yeah and so this is kind of uh, speaking to me uh, that you break the symmetry and and get interesting patterns out of that yes yeah um so um, what kind of um, models does he then uh, use or um, were developed uh, even further on in order to then um, understand this um, development of patterns? Because mm. I was, I'm asking because when you just prove that things go to an equilibrium, you kind of choose the right norm and tell that it goes to zero or something like that, or you find bounds. Mm. But if uh, things go up, uh, do you really um, prove that, um, <laughs> that um, you don't, so that you have lower bounds or that you really uh, see the pattern somehow in, in your mathematical model? Yeah, I mean, so you converge to an equilibrium, but it's a pattern it's equilibrium. It's a pattern, yeah. Yeah, so you, the, uh, the uniform equilibrium is no longer um, uh, stable. Um, so, I mean, he wrote his paper in 1952, and there was a phase when people were interested in this as a model in embryology. Yeah. And then it sort of went out of fashion because um, the, the people who, who discovered how patterning worked in the fly Drosophila discovered that all of the stripes were kind of independently controlled by different genes rather okay. than being... There is no interaction really. Yeah, okay. so it, that didn't really work in that way. So then it kind of went out of fashion. Um, and... Turing models specifically are coming back into fashion a bit more now. I mentioned the example of the digits. So there's a guy called James Sharp in Barcelona who's built a model of digit patterning using the, the genes involved uh, 
And I mean, w one of the things with a Turing pattern is that it has a fixed wavelength. So um, patterns of certain wave number grow at a certain rate. So you have a range of wave numbers which, which grow. So your patterning has pretty much a fixed wavelength. And so in models of... Uh, embryology where there can be a kind of diversity of sizes this was a problem so people wanted to explain how things could pattern in the same way irrespective of the size I mean I suppose in this example it would be people with different sized hands because in a classic Turing model if you had a bigger hand you'd have more fingers because the wavelength <laughs> would be the same and it's, I mean, it's actually I think one of the most common birth defects is to have a sixth finger but it's you know the vast majority of people have five fingers and so the occasional That's person has, yeah. has a, a little sixth finger yeah. and yet there's quite a diversity in hand size. So the model that, that James Sharp built of uh, the development of digits um, involved another chemical which modulates the wavelength of the Turing pattern. So it's you can get Turing patterns with two chemical species. You have two coupled PDEs. Um, his model has three coupled PDEs, and one of the chemicals modulates the wavelength of the pattern of the other two. So, yeah. <laughs> but I was interested, I mean, during my DPhil, I was looking at patterning of what's called the primitive streak. So the primitive streak in a human embryo and a chick embryo as well, uh, the embryo starts out like a disk of cells. So they're pretty much all the same, and then the outside ones are a bit different. But there's no um, preferred direction. And then um, the primitive streak forms, and that will later become the backbone of the embryo. So that's creating the major axis of the embryo. So I was interested in this symmetry-breaking event, how this uh, primitive streak uh, its location, how it's determined. There were some really fascinating experiments from the 60s by Germans, I think, Spratt and Haas, um, and they cut uh, chick embryos in half, uh, and they got twins. So each half of this disc would produce its own primitive streak and develop an embryo. So in a way, this means they still have all the information. Yeah, that's right. I mean, what probably happens is that when a streak starts to form or when the genes that control the streak production are produced, they produce something that inhibits the formation of other streaks. Mm. So this, this first little embryo says, don't produce any more here. But if you cut the tissue in half... That's that still the possibility for... It doesn't receive this. The other yeah. half doesn't receive the inhibition, and so it produces uh, a twin. So, yeah. That's really fascinating. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's kind of so interesting to see um, how the, all this information is there and can be developed in so many ways yes. and, and to understand it even better. No. So my, my former question concerning how you work with the symmetry breaking is um, triggered by one problem which, which we had. So for example, if you have a convection problems, problems, so kind of the standard thing is you would put your pen on the oven, put a little bit of oil inside and then you heat it from below yes. and you have like room temperature outside. Uh -huh. Uh, then at the very beginning, you can really look through this oil, so it's not really moving. Mm -hmm. And the temperature difference is regulated by just having different temperature layers between the lowest layer and the highest layer. Mm -hmm. And then when the temperature difference becomes too big, so the oil is heating up from below very much, 
then um, this is no longer a stable process. Mm -hmm. And so um, some convection patterns start to form. Mm -hmm. And you see this in the oil because then you can't really look through it. Mm -hmm. If it would be perfect, the perfect pen, you would really say hexagonal patterns. But um, since there are always disturbances, perturbations, I made one word of both these. Um, <laughs> and it's like a, a chaotic um, picture you get, but you see that uh, kind of the oil is um, hot enough now because, right, because <laughs> you it's have this convection this. <laughs> pattern. <laughs> yes. And um, uh, this is a, a really nice problem because um, it's um, simple enough to understand a lot of processes. Mm -hmm. And um, the standard thing is, for example, that you can speak about uh, onset of convection in comparison to the non-moving solution before. So the non-moving mm -hmm. solution is always a solution to the system, but it just loses, stabi mm -hmm. loses stability at that point. And of course, if you would heat it more and more, of course, the oil won't stand this, but theoretically, mm -hmm. uh, all these convection patterns would break up to get even more complicated mm -hmm. to have more um, exchange uh, mm -hmm. between hot and cold parts. Mm -hmm. But um, now um, we, we were starting um, to consider something which is so similar in the sense that um, I have um, an annular domain. So you could consider it to be three-dimensional, but just um, cut through and have a two-dimensional thing. So you have two rings with the same uh, center and the ring is uh, heated from inside. So this is like my my oven is in the inside. So for example, a hot um so it's a hot, hot connection where you have electricity going through things like that, which really um, heats up um, the plastic around things like that, and the cold outside, mm -hmm. and uh, this in a gravity field as the convection before, and then um, the the main difference is that you never have the solution where nothing moves is possible. Okay. Yeah, because the gradient of the the temperature different goes in all directions in a different yes, way. Yes, yes, And the gravity has always the same direction. So there yes. is always from the very beginning, there is a certain movement, yes. which um, they call the basic flow, uh -huh. which is kind of the same thing as no movement in the standard example. Mm -hmm. And then to consider how to break away from this basic flow where we don't have any analytical expression. We just have observations and numerical experiments for that. Yeah. That's so hard. Yes, it sounds hard. Yeah, because if you it, don't have a, an expression yeah, for the basic really flow. Yeah, we don't really have any properties. So like we have tried with certain symmetry properties, things like that. Yes. Like, like you have a kind of a generic thing which breaks and um, then you get really kind of um, sit down and um, thank the Lord to, to say for, for the easy examples. Because if you go away from them, then you only understand how much they work for you. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like comparing that to the situation so if you just have this like every, every perturbation just goes down to some well studied equilibrium this is so of course there are always uh, things you can um, learn anew about that because yes. that's why we are still writing papers about it but mm. you have a certain um, picture in your head and you have certain examples uh, of successful uh, procedures and if you just go away from all these examples uh, then it's really hard. Yes. I looked a little bit during my my uh, uh, defil at secondary patterning. So I mean, Turing was talking about patterning from a um, starting from a uniform state mm. with just some noise. And so I looked a little bit at uh, patterning that occurs on top of another pattern. Um, 
though the kind of patterns I was looking at were things that I knew what they were, if you see what I mean. So it didn't have yeah, that, that property that you yeah, don't but, know where you're starting from. Yeah, but that's, that's perfectly fine. Yeah, just to, to try to really find what you know should be there in the model. Mm. Yeah. Even if we feel excited, if we see something which was not really observed before, and then we, we can ask the experimentalists to look for that. Mm, yes. <laughs> which yeah. we were talking about before, yeah, just trying out if, if these types of things really can happen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the most exciting bits, really, because it's all very well building a model to explain something that's been seen already. But the real test of a model is if you make new predictions. Do those stand up or, or not? <laughs> yeah. Uh, when you started or got excited for this um, touring um, problem, mm. so you had um, finished your studies before, probably with also a main paper you had to hand in at the end. So, so were uh, you really um, yeah. specialized in that field? No, not at all. Um, so, I mean, first thing to say is I gave up biology when I was 14 at school. I didn't. In this country, we do GCSE and then A-level. So GCSE is at 16 and A-level is at 18. And I didn't even do biology to GCSE. So I knew very little biology when I started. Um, and I did um, part three maths. So I did I mean, it's sort of a master's. It is now a master's uh, in, in maths. And, um, I specialized in theoretical physics. So I had to write a, an essay and I wrote it on gravitational waves. So <laughs> I'd studied, um, you know, when I could choose, I'd chosen theoretical physics and algebra, and I really haven't used them. And people do use group theory in pattern formation, but I haven't really, I haven't studied it from that point of view. So yes, my, my, expertise was in algebra and theoretical physics um i kind of wish now that i'd done courses in uh, stochastic processes because i haven't talked about this but i i use stochastic processes in my uh, work and um, probably pds and some numerical analysis so these things would have been more useful to me than some of the things that i did study mm. This brings me to a question I wanted to ask and kind of it slipped through. Uh, uh, when you study your um, coupled ODEs, mm. um, do you use numerics in order to uh, kind of see things develop or do you really stick to analytical going through the phases? No, I, I do use numerics. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a mathematical biologist who doesn't use numerics. Um, I was kind of expecting that, but we yeah. didn't really talk about that. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, I, I'm a mathematician at heart. Uh, until I did my DPhil, I'd done almost no computing at all. So I like when the system, when I can use some mathematical analysis, but I have to use numerical methods because... Everything I deal with, almost everything I deal with is nonlinear. And so it's not obvious in advance how it's going to behave. So we analyze this model numerically first. And then you see these certain behaviors and you, then you try to uh, analyze it. I mean, you try to use some mathematical analysis. But the types of behaviors that I saw um, did not prove mathematically that you would get them. Uh, we simplified the system. So um, 
uh, we had production rates that depended on the levels. One, the production rate of one protein depended on the levels of other proteins. And the kind of functions that we use, they're called hill functions. And they, they're basically flat here, and then they're sloped, and then they're flat again. And we approximated those by an all or none function, so a heavy side function. And it's then, jump, yeah. Yeah. And so then it's very easy to find your steady states and to analyze their stability if you have these heavy side functions, because you've just got a production rate which is constant and then a degradation rate which is linear in your protein. So it's very easy to find the steady states and their stability in this simplified system. So that's what we did. Um, we also applied a bit of theory in showing that this, that the full nonlinear system was quasi two-dimensional so would either oscillate or go to a steady state but the existence of you know limit cycles or the existence of oscillations was only shown in the simplified model yeah and so when you are um, hope, um using stochastic um mm -hmm. equations then this probably refers to the this is my idea you can say what, what what's right um kind of um putting some as we were talking before like energy into the system or you know with your parameter that mm. you really don't uh, have this parameter uh, as a precise parameter but kind of varying according to certain yeah no it's not really that i mean it mm. is it is true that um we, we should that there's noise in our input parameter so we should have noise in our input parameter but the first source of noise that we analyzed was the fact that you have individual molecules of things and so when you talk about decay what you've actually got is individual molecules being destroyed and if there aren't enough of those you can't just describe this by an ordinary differential equation so you know if, it's true yeah. yeah if you have lots of molecules you can write down chemical reactions using mass action law and you can describe things by concentrations mm. If you have very few molecules, you have to look at the full stochastic process of production and degradation using the chemical master equation. But there's an intermediate regime. So if you have sufficiently few molecules that, I'm going to call it noise, but I don't mean what's in the street, I mean stochasticity is important. Um, but if your reaction rates don't change much on the timescale of your reactions, so on the timescale of your slowest reaction, if your reaction rates are approximately constant, you can use a, an approach called the chemical Langevin equation, which is a stochastic differential equation. So you just have your dynamical system plus some white noise terms yeah. added. So we were studying stochastic differential equations And the only source of noise was this intrinsic noise from the fact that we have individual molecules rather than concentrations. So we've not yet looked properly at, indeed, our input parameter is noisy. So we'd like to add some stochasticity to that as well, but we haven't really looked at that yet. And that's partly because what we're interested in is how you get nice straight boundaries between the different cell types given that you've got this very noisy system. And one of the major sources of um, noise is just cell division. So if you have a nice straight boundary between two cell types and they divide and die, then that boundary will become wiggly. So we're trying to build our tissue level model to look at that before we put too much detail into um, 
our model of the signal being noisy. But it was actually very interesting looking at these stochastic differential equations because they behave rather differently. So if you just consider two genes and one represses the other and the other represses the one, this is referred to as a bistable switch. So you either have this gene expressed or this gene expressed, but not both because they inhibit one another. So if you build a deterministic model of this, you'll get hysteresis. So you'll get a region where one gene is expressed, a region where another gene is expressed. Um, I, I should say... I, a region, I'm talking about different levels of my input. So I've got an input into one of the genes, and that's a parameter. So if I plot that parameter, at low levels, one gene will be switched on. At high levels, another gene will be switched on. And in between, there's this bistable region where either can be expressed. And in that region, you'll get hysteresis. So you'd have to increase your input signal quite high to switch on the gene, but then you can go down much lower before you switch it off. Um, but in the system where you have noise, so if you have a, a stochastic differential equation version of this, you lose this hysteresis. So the system is going to... So what happens in a, in a randomly perturbed dynamical system is if you have a steady state, you don't stay there forever. So in a, in a, in a deterministic dynamical system, if you have a stable steady state, you go there just and you just stay there. there. Mm. But in a randomly perturbed dynamical system, occasionally you can make a transition from this state to the other state, from one state to the other state. Um, and if you wait a long time, you will do this. So the boundary between where you're going to see this state and where you're going to see that state is at the point where the transition time from here to here is equal to the transition time from there to there. And that's completely different from the top of the bistable zone in the deterministic system. So it behaves completely differently, even if you have a very low level of noise. Mm. Well, this makes uh, total, total sense to me. <laughs> the thing is that um, you have kind of a, a similar topic, even if it's a little bit different, of course, mm -hmm. if you um, build models for fluid flow, uh -huh. then uh, the standard thing, which is the easiest to understand for us, is just to have a look at uh, velocity um, as a vector in three dimensions um, in, at each point and over time. And uh, we have also to take into account the pressure gradient. These are the two things on a, we call this macroscopic level because we can observe that and we can measure. Mm -hmm. Of course, the measurements kind of disturb the systems, but yeah. uh, we can, can do that. And this is kind of a very well-established thing in, um, which we do in engineering. And there are equations, very highly nonlinear things. Um, of course, with the onset of uh, the computers, we had the hope that we could, if we don't really have water, but something like air flowing, which is less dense, we could maybe uh, consider the movement of the particles. Mm. So, like mm -hmm. on the microscopic level. Mm -hmm. But there are still so many. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so there is um, the, the thing that we also have uh, a level in between, mesoscopic, Mm -hmm. where we don't really attract the particles, but we attract them with distribution. So kind of a typical behavior of the material mm -hmm. is hidden in stochastic terms. Mm -hmm. And um, so this is, is a possibility to consider this. Um, and then, of course, you also have that this behaves like completely differently, mm -hmm. but in kind of limit cases, they all should um, coincide with, with each other because they model the same thing. 
And that's also very interesting to observe that. Mm. And, and then we have uh, always the discussion with my colleague, uh, who is a physicist, that she's also saying, you know, with this continuum mechanics, if we just go level down, down, down and down, and then I only have uh, two molecules and there is nothing in between, where is my continuum? I can't mm. really use that model. So I really have to cut it off early enough. And mm. so this is with your, um, <laughs> if there are not enough of the proteins yes yes <laughs> you have to come up with something else and yes. uh, this to make the stochastic is of course um, a good way to try that of mm. course as a real mathematician then we would also ask ourselves uh, what type of noise is there and does it make a difference of the <laughs> right so um and where could we get information and things like that <laughs> yeah well i mean so um The postdoc who's been working on this has recently started talking to somebody in my collaborator's lab who is measuring numbers of proteins mm. because this was not really an accessible thing before. Yeah. So it's really new to even get the numbers of the proteins. Um, I mean, so what we really want to know is which are the most important sources of stochasticity. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's very difficult. So what is the nature of the noise? I mean... We've only looked at this intrinsic noise, and this intrinsic noise is simply the difference between uh, a kind of Poisson process and the average of a Poisson process, <laughs> you know. So um, this noise is fairly well understood, yeah. this type of noise. But the noise in the input signal doesn't behave like that, and we also have noise from cell division. So, yeah. Difficult to know at the yeah. moment, but we are starting to get measurements of numbers of molecules. Yeah. So my um, my belief is uh, that, of course, uh, the, the type of mathematics um, you were describing and using mm. for the um, biological mathematical pattern formation things, they are kind of um, well known, established for quite a few long time mm -hmm. and I think um, that we are get much more interested in using this as triggered by the fact that now it's possible to really make the experiments make sorry the experiments to yes. really measure the things yes. and that um, the biologists are really also kind of of course they develop all these experiments but then they are sitting there and can't really make sense of what they are seeing mm. and that it can help um, to, to make um, these mathematical models Yeah, um, to get this stru structures um, in in these observations. I think primarily when things are nonlinear, it's quite difficult without doing some kind of mathematical yeah. analysis to figure out how things are going to behave. If things are linear, then you can kind of apply cause and effect reasoning, and you maybe don't need to do maths to understand what's going on. But when things are nonlinear, it's quite hard to work out in your head how things are going to behave. Yeah. Yeah, also this is um, can be a nightmare, but it's also this, the point where the most interesting things happen yeah, yes. if it's starting to get nonlinear. Yes. But I think sometimes, um, so kind of the, the things which we use as first approximation for everyday life, we always assume things to behave linear. Mm -hmm. I, at least in my like, experience. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, as a mathematician, we know it's not true. Yes. But we have work to work so hard in order to uh, tell ourselves, you can't expect that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> so um, 
what is um, a direction you would like to go to or you are already going uh, to with your research just now? Yeah, um, I mean, so this stochastic stuff is fairly new to me and I quite like it. There's some pretty theory on rare, rare event theory that we've been applying. So not just numerical work. Yeah. But, so I'm kind of keen to uh, extend that. Um, I mean, I also have other interests. So I'm interested in evolutionary dynamics. Um, and yeah, so... Again, the work that I had done quite a while ago on evolutionary dynamics was primarily deterministic. So I'm quite interested in looking at stochastic versions of, of that. Yeah. And then there are always lots of new biological problems that inspire me. So I'm always getting involved in new collaborations with different biologists. Yeah. Do you find it hard um, to talk, to kind to, to cover this cultural distance, how biologists um, speak about their research and to really make sense of, of what they tell you in their words? I'd say not anymore. I mm. did very much so when I was first doing it. So I think I spent about a year or 18 months just not really getting the language at the start of my uh, graduate work. Um, but I've done it for quite a long time now. So now, it, I mean, it's something I enjoy anyway. Now I'm, I know a reasonable amount of biology and I'm experienced at talking to biologists. Um, but of course, it really helps to have collaborators who are sympathetic and interested. Um, I mean, so the person that I work with on the neural tube stuff is a guy called James Briscoe at the Francis Crick Institute. And he's brilliant. I mean, he's he can use computers, he's interested in learning about dynamical systems, you know, you don't always get that kind of reaction from from biologists. Some biologists hated maths at school. Yeah, that's the thing, yes. Yeah, yes. With, so. the with the engineering students, they always, uh, firstly, they know they need maths and uh, quite a few of them really love maths. Mm. But uh, the farther away you get from the... Um, not living things to the living things uh, very often the, there's kind of a divide that people decide to be biologists because they love life yeah they hate math yes it's not always that clear cut but uh, the percentage of persons in biology who hate to have to learn a little bit of math at least you know if you, if you measure things you have to learn a bit of statistics in order to make sense of that so, which we would consider to be trivial obvious uh, they have to really see yes. that it's useful to them and then to be excited about dynamical systems <laughs> It takes it to a completely new level. Yeah, no, well, I've been very fortunate. It's very nice to collaborate with somebody who is, I mean, they're interested in their problem. They think maths is really important and yeah, helping to understand it, but is even quite interested in the maths, yeah. you know, so that, so I've been very fortunate. I mean, I've collaborated with other people who are good with maths as well. Um, but yes, also just quite a lot of experience has made me, enjoy and find it okay um, to communicate with biologists. I mean, of course, when I start a new collaboration, I won't know the specific biology, but at least I have enough vocabulary that I'm not completely, well, what are they talking about? You know, it's, yeah. So I find it fun. Yeah. So I thank you very much that you took the time to have this um in-depth conversation. <laughs> It's been a pleasure. Oh, absolutely Thank fascinating. Thank you.